Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note. This week, we continue our journey through the changing year. For more information on how to use this inspiring resource by Florence Haynes, please see the episode entitled A Walk in February. We hope this week's episode will give you interesting ideas for special studies, as well as a nudge to go outside yourself to explore nature this unique time of year. A Walk in September from The Changing Year by Florence M. Haynes Next him, September marched eke on foot, yet was he heavy laden with the spoil of harvest's riches, which he made his boot, and him enriched with bounty of the soil. In his one hand, as fit for harvest's toil, he held a knife-hook, and in the other hand a pair of weights, with which he did a soil both more and less, where it in doubt did stand, and equal gave to each as justice duly scanned. Spencer September is the month of dewy mornings and evenings, of ripening fruit and changing leaves, of harvest moon and joyous harvest home. Our Saxon forefathers called it Gerstmonat, for that, says Verstigen, barley, which that month commonly yielded, was anciently called Gerst, the name of barley being given unto it by reason of the drink therewith made, called beer, and from beerleg it came to be bearleg, and from bearleg to barley. So in like manner, beerheim, to wit, the overdecking or covering of beer, came to be called burum, and afterwards barm, having since gotten I wot not how many names besides. It was also known as halige, or heilige, that is holy monat, for that our forefathers, that while they heathens were, in this month celebrated their devil guild. In Russia, St. Giles's Day, September 1st, is considered the carrier away of summer, while in Rome it is said that St. Matthew, September 21st, bids goodbye to summer, and St. Morris, the 22nd, shuts the door after him. And in Milan, you will not see many fine days after St. Matthew. English proverbs tell us that St. Matthew brings cold rain and dew, and bid us at St. Matthew get candlesticks new, and at St. Matthew shut up the bee. The Germans have a rhyme, Wieder sanet a gilde tag, so der ganze monat mag. And a similar prophecy is connected with the eighth, the day of the nativity of the Blessed Virgin. For, wie das Wetter an Maria geburt, so soll es wir wochen bleiden. While the shepherd's calendar tells us that if Michaelmas day be fine, the sun will shine much in the winter, though the wind at northeast will frequently rain along and be sharp and nipping. The French say, quand le vent est au nord, le jour de la Saint-Michel, le mois d'octobre est sec. And, pluie de Saint-Michel, soit devant ou derrière, elle ne demeure au ciel. The age of the moon on Michaelmas Day determines, it is said, the number of floods to follow. So many days as the moon is old on that festival, so many will be the succeeding floods. Now there winds the birds of passage wait, and bid a last farewell to every grove.
The ring ouzel is seen before its departure to Africa. The last of the martens will disappear early in October. Of those still here, many are traveling south and, taking the places of those already gone, seem to keep up the number for a time. Blackbird and thrush are heard again. The wood owl hoots, the stone curlew or stone plover calls, and through the wheaten stubble is heard the frequent gun as the startled partridges rise on rapid wing. The ring ouzel belongs to the family of thrushes and resembles a large blackbird with broad white band across the front of its throat. The plumage is blackish-brown with wings of brown with whitish edgings. The wood or tawny owl, though rare in Scotland, is common in England. Its favourite haunts are the hollow trunks of oak and beech woods, but it is also found in towers and ruined buildings, and its clear cry, hoo-hoo, or to-wit-to-woo, sounds morning and evening. All our game birds, pheasant, woodcock, snipe, partridge, and grouse, are of mottled brown plumage, very difficult to distinguish from their surroundings. The long bill of woodcock and snipe is extremely sensitive, and is thrust into soft ground in search of grubs, larvae, worms, etc. A tame snipe has been known to eat nearly twice its own weight of worms in 12 hours. Three species of snipe visit Britain, the common snipe, the jack snipe or judcock, and the great or solitary snipe. The first is plentiful on marsh and moor. It migrates in autumn, returning to breed in spring, while the snipe found in England during the winter months are visitors from Scandinavia. The jack snipe, a common winter visitor, is smaller than the others, being only seven and a half inches in length, whereas the common snipe is ten and a half, and the great snipe an inch longer than that. This last is less frequently seen and is indeed rare in Scotland and Ireland, though an annual visitor to our eastern and southern counties. Snipe migrate by night, when too they chiefly feed, rarely flying by day unless disturbed, when they rise suddenly and dart off with great rapidity, and the curious zigzag flight which renders them a difficult mark for the sportsman. The woodcock rises with a louder whirr of the wings than its neighbour. It flies less rapidly and darts less, like them, it is nocturnal in habit, and while the snipe inhabits open marshy ground, the woodcock, as its name implies, prefers woods and plantations. As these latter have increased, the number of birds that spend the year in Britain has also increased, while snipe, owing to the improved drainage of bogs and fens, are becoming less common. In the same way, the partridge, which feeds on both insects and grain, has increased in number with the extended cultivation of the land, and is now the most common of British game birds. From the gastronomical point of view, it has been well said that, if the woodcock had the partridge's wing, t'would be the best bird that ever did sing. If the partridge had the woodcock's thigh, t'would be the best bird that ever did fly. The common, or grey partridge, ranges over Europe and Western and Central Asia and is found also in Africa. Like most game birds, its nest is little more than a hollow in the ground, and contains from 12 to 20 eggs, and the chicks can run as soon as hatched. The red-legged, or French partridge, is a native of southwest Europe, 
and is said to have been first introduced into England in the reign of Charles II. According to Carlyle, the French Revolution of 1789, with its abolition of the existing game laws, caused emigrant flights of French seigneurs, emigrant winged flights of French game. The French partridge inhabits heavy clay lands and heaths, is stronger on the wing, and rather larger than its confrere, whom it has largely displaced in Norfolk and Suffolk, and to whom it has been suggested it has taught the trick of running, though others assert that this development, which is recent, is the result of the introduction of the reaping machine and sowing drill. Both pheasant and grouse are closely allied to the partridge. The former is so-called from the scientific name of the genus, Phasianus, which itself is derived from the river Phasis in Colchis, from the banks of which the bird was introduced into Europe in ancient days, it is alleged, by the Argonauts. The date of its naturalization in Britain is unknown, but in 1199, King John granted a license to one William Brewer to hunt the hare, fox, cat, and wolf throughout all Devonshire, and to have free warren throughout all his own lands for hares, pheasants, and partridges. Of grouse, we have the caper calesy, black game, ptarmigan, and the red grouse. The first three, natives of Scotland, the last, peculiar to the British Isles, being found only in Scotland, the north of England, Wales, and Ireland, it is supposed to be an insular form of the willow grouse of the continent. The red grouse varies in colour from black, the least common form, through rufous chestnut to a white spotted plumage. It is probable that, like its continental allies and others of its genus, it originally changed to white for the winter, but has abandoned a habit no longer necessary for protection. A second brood of the wood-white butterfly appears this month, and the vaporer and figure of eight moth emerge from their cocoons. The little brown vaporer moth is widely distributed and fond of flying in the sunshine. The female is wingless and of a paler color. She never travels far from her pupa case, on which, indeed, she usually places her eggs, which hatch the following summer. The figure of eight moth is also common, but a night flyer. It may readily be identified by the two eights on each wing, the outer figure rather blurred, but the inner most distinct. The larvae of the gold tail, buff arches, hedged dagger, orange, knotgrass, and lover's knot moths may now be found on their respective food plants. A noticeable feature of insect life this month is the abundance of gossamer, spun by the young spiders who thus literally launch themselves into the world. Ascending some elevation, a blade of grass or clod of earth near their birthplace, the little creatures produce a few short threads which they fix firmly, then grasping these they spin a long fine thread, which blowing hither and thither and tangling itself with the rest forms a raft which, lifted by the wind, is carried to some fresh place where the little spinner will pass the winter." After a dewy morning, these tiny threads, bedecked with pearly drops, are conspicuous on grass and bush. In Germany, they are known as Sommerfäden and Marien, or Unserlieben Frauenfäden. Eyebright, ragwort, chamomile, corn marigold, mayweed, yarrow, toad flax, knotgrass, climbing buckwheat, heart's ease, knapweed, fumatory, thistles, hardhead, harebell, and red campion still brighten fields and hedgerow, 
but our flower list grows smaller and smaller. Only the pheasant's eye, the naked flowered crocus, the saffron crocus, the misnamed meadow saffron or autumn crocus, the Michaelmas daisy, and the arbutus can be considered as September flowers, and these are all more or less local. The pheasant's eye is not native, but was probably introduced among grain. Gerard says of it, The red flower of Adonis groweth wild in the west parts of England, among their corn as mayweed does. From thence I brought the seeds, and have sown it in my garden for the beauty of the flower's sake. Miller, in the Gardener's Dictionary, tells us that numbers of these flowers were annually brought to London and sold under the name of Red Morocco. It received its name of Adonis from the legend that when the unfortunate youth was slain by the wild boar, this flower, growing where he fell, was crimsoned by his blood. In France, it is known as La Donide and as Goutte de Saint, in Italy as the Fiore d'Adone, in Germany as the Adonis Blume and Adonis Rose, and the Dutch call it Adonis Blum. The naked flowered and the saffron crocus produce their flowers in autumn and their leaves the following spring. The former is chiefly found in the Midlands, and the latter is interesting as supplying the saffron, prepared from the dried stigmas, so highly esteemed in former days and still employed in cake-making and in medicine. Saffron waldron takes its name from this flower, which was extensively cultivated there, having been introduced, it is said, from the East in 1339. It was employed as a dye by various nations, including the ancient Greeks, who used it especially for the dress of royal personages, as did the Irish. According to Giraldus Cambrensis, saffron with milk forms the food of fairyland. The clown, in the winter's tale, must have saffron to colour the warden pies. From Act 4, Scene 2. And the saffron bag was in high esteem for its effect in promoting cheerfulness, so that among the ancients it was said, when a man was merry, that he had slept on a saffron bag. Nothing according to the philosophical Mr. Caxton, more conduces to longevity than a saffron bag. Though, as he explained to the young Pisistratus, it is not the saffron bag, but the belief in the saffron bag that is so efficacious. The meadow saffron or autumn crocus, though resembling the foregoing, is, as its six stamens denote, a member of the lily family. It is remarkable for the protection of its seeds, like the naked flowered and saffron crocus, the flowers appear in autumn and the leaves in spring. The seed vessel is at the base of the long perianth tube at a depth of 10 or 12 inches below ground. Here it remains through the winter safe from frost, but with the return of spring it is borne aloft by an ascending stem and the seeds ripening towards midsummer scatter themselves in the ordinary way. Now the Michaelmas daisy among dead weeds blooms for St. Michael's valorous deeds. It is always found near the sea and is common on salt marshes, hence its name of sea starwort. The last of our September flowers, the blossom of the arbutus or strawberry tree, is only found wild in Ireland, where the shrub is said to have been introduced from Spain or Italy by the monks of Mewcross Abbey. The fruit formed one year ripens the next, so that the waxy greenish-white bells and scarlet balls hang together. 
Now drops the ripe acorn in the fern, the mellow apple in the grass, the gypsy cheeks of nature burn as autumn's fingers o'er them pass. He strides across the purple heath, blue cornflowers round his sunburnt head, loosing brown filbert from its sheath, crimsoning the forest bed. And not only acorn and filbert, but the fruits of walnut, chestnut, yew, and holly are fast ripening. The coral fruit of the mountain ash or rowan somewhat resembles the crimson-tinted clusters borne by the gelder rose. The bramble is laden with purple-black berries, hops are ready for picking, rose hips and the scarlet berries of the bryony brighten our hedgerows, with the darker red of the haws, the deep purple fruit of the blackthorn, and the dark clusters of the elder. By the roadside gleam the poisonous but beautiful berries of the cuckoo pint. The solitary black fruit of the deadly nightshade is ripe, and on the moorlands we find cranberry, bilberry, and juniper. The fruit of the last takes two years to mature. Ferns drop their spores, and fungi of various shapes and colors abound both in our woods and on open land. Originally, all fungi were divided, as they still are in popular parlance, into mushrooms and toadstools. Witness the great herbal of 1526. Fungi ben musherons, there be two manners of them. One manner is deadly, and slayeth them that eateth of them, and be called toadstools, and the other doeth not. This distinction is hardly satisfactory, and at the present day, pending a further classification, fungi are grouped mainly by the color of their spores. There are several thousand varieties of fungi, but the majority may be divided into two classes, the agaric and the boleti. The former, which includes the various mushrooms, have plates or gills on the underside of the cap. The boleti have no gills, but a level surface underneath punctuated with innumerable holes like pinpricks. These are the openings of fine tubes closely pressed together, which contain the spores, which in the agaric are borne on the gills. In addition to these two main groups, we have the hedgehog mushrooms, the puffballs, the claveria or fairy clubs, the pretty scarlet fairy or elf cups found on decaying wood, and others. Many boleti are edible, and one, the edible boletus, is much in use on the continent, where it is dried and sold as sep. Other wholesome British species are the rare summer boletus, which appears in June or July, granular boletus, boletus elegans, dingy boletus, and the bay boletus. The flesh of several species turns blue when bruised or cut. All such are more or less poisonous in character. Mr. Cook, in his British Edible Fungi, tells us that mushrooms were well known to the ancients. There are Chaldean words for fungi and boleti. The boleti of Greece and Rome were what we now know as mushrooms. And so highly were these esteemed that a Latin writer advises that they should not be sent by messenger, lest they be devoured on the way. Silver and gold are safe, but not the esculent fungus. Argentis atque aurum facile est, lenamque togamque mitere, boletos mitere difficile est. Of the chanterelle fungus found in woods, an old writer, Batarra, said that properly prepared it would arrest the pangs of death. The false chanterelle, which is inedible, grows in the open.
The lactor group of fungi contains a freely flowing milky white juice, and among these are several edible species, including the sweet milk, Lactarius subdulcis, and the orange milk mushroom, Lactarius deliciosus. The last, as its scientific name implies, is the best for culinary purposes. It grows under fir trees, and its orange juice changes to green when the plant is broken or cut. The slayer has a reddish-brown and the slimy lactar a dingy-green glutinous cup. Neither is fit for food. The poisonous fly agaric, or flybane, grows in woods. It is a singularly handsome fungus with scarlet cap dotted with pale lumps and ivory gills and contains a strong narcotic juice much used in the manufacture of fly papers, hence the name. The stinkhorn also grows in woods and may be known by its fetid smell. In its early stages, it resembles a soft white egg. Indeed, this fungus is known in Kent as ghost's eggs. Presently, the shell breaks and a spongy stalk bearing a sort of helmet covered by a dark green slimy mass containing spores shoots up so rapidly that in two or three hours, it measures five or six inches in length. Now the whole fungus, and especially the slimy material, gives out a horrible odor, most attractive to flies, blue bottles especially, who greedily devour the stuff, thus disseminating the spores. The dog stinkhorn is similar but smaller and has no cap, the sticky mucus simply covering the top of the stalk. Its scent is faint and not unpleasant. The rooting shank has a polished, twisted stem which ends underground in a tapering point. The agaric canobruneus grows in fields and open places. Its color is pale brown or flesh tint, and as the cap expands, it frequently splits at the edge. In appearance, it is something like the edible champignon, or fairy ring mushroom. Most fungi extract their nourishment from dead and decaying vegetable matter, but some attack living plants, usually through a wound, as when a branch of a tree is broken. The stump tuft is one of these, and a great cause of timber disease. It grows in groups at the base of trees or stumps, its fibrils passing inward and absorbing nourishment from its host. An even commoner species is the sulfur tuft, with sulfur-colored caps and gills of greenish-gray with purple-brown spores. The beech tuft is usually ivory-white and almost translucent. It is edible and said to be delicious. The vegetable beefsteak or oak tongue is also edible. Out of the various species in the oyster group, Mr. Cook recommends the elm mushroom as the best for culinary purposes. Most of the parasol mushrooms appear in late summer, or early autumn. Various rusules, too, and warted cap mushrooms. The hedgehog mushrooms are so-called from the spines found beneath the cap, which spines take the place of the gills in the agarics and the tubes of the boletti. The great puffball was formerly dried and used for binding over wounds. It was also burnt to stupefy bees before taking their honey, and is said to have been employed as tinder in the days of flint and steel. Gerard tells us, in diverse parts of England, where people doth dwell far from neighbours, they carry them kindled with fire, which lasteth long, so that the aged puffballs shall help us to cheat the dainty bees of their luscious meat, while others shall turn to give us light and scare from our dell the dreary night. When young and edible, 
The giant puffball is white, inside and out. But as the season advances, the interior turns yellow, and lastly olive, a mass of threads mixed with minute spores. And an opening appears at the top through which these puff out as a cloud of dust when the ball is compressed. This species sometimes attains to a foot in diameter, and one was mentioned in the Gardener's Chronicle for September 20th, 1884, that measured 5 feet 4 inches in circumference. But even this is beaten by a record from America. These puffballs are known in Norfolk as bullfers or bullfists. There are several smaller species, common on lawns and pasture lands. The earth ball resembles the puffball, but its interior is bluish-gray, and no pore develops at the top. The spores are set free by the decay of the outer coat. The rare and striking-looking earth star is an allied species. In this, there are two coats, of which the inner encloses the spores, and the outer splits into seven or eight segments, which turn backwards and form the points of the star. Of the various species of Clavaria, known as stag's horn or fairy club fungi found this month, several grow among dead leaves, but the majority among the grass on lawns or in parks. Except the Hercules club, which may be six or seven inches in length, these fungi are of small size, usually two or three inches long and no thicker than a knitting needle. One of the most common is the Clavaria fastigiata, the Clavaria amethystina is of a beautiful violet color, and the Clavaria botrites, with its thick stem dividing upward into numerous branches, somewhat resembles a cauliflower. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.